Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary Port St. Lucie. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Descent of the Spirit. All right, well, before he ascended back up into heaven, Lord Jesus, he told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, um, that he wanted them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. All right, so what, by way of review, what's the promise of the Father? And we see that in the very next verse. In Acts chapter one, verse five, Jesus said, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with who? The Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. All right, so in just 10 days from the time that Jesus said that, the disciples would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's the promise that God made. All right, so what does the word baptized mean? The transliteration is baptizo, and it means literally in the Greek to dip repeatedly, to immerse, to submerge, to overwhelm. And so the Lord Jesus, in essence, is saying to his disciples, guys, I'm gonna go away, but don't be afraid. I'm going back to my Father in heaven, but I, I want you to dry your tears because after I ascend, the Father and I, we're gonna send the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to descend, and he's going to immerse, he's going to submerge, he's going to overwhelm you. As Jesus promised in John 14, verse 17, the Holy Spirit would not just be with them, the Holy Spirit was gonna be inside of them. And so the Father's promise to send the Holy Spirit in Acts 1 was about to be fulfilled right now, right here in Acts chapter 2. All right, so if you're new to Christianity, you're new to church, you're new to the Bible, you need to know that this is a pivotal chapter in the Word of God that we're tackling today. Acts chapter 2 marks a new beginning a new era, a new dispensation. You see, it's time for the Holy Spirit to come, not just on a temporary basis as he did in Old Testament times. Right now, everything's changing. He's gonna come on a permanent basis. It's time for the Holy Spirit to permanently indwell the followers of Jesus Christ and not just indwell them, but empower them to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's time right here and right now in Acts chapter two for the church to be born. This is a pivotal chapter. And you need to know that not only were these guys uh, submerged, immersed, baptized with the Holy Spirit, but not only that, right here and right now, the Holy Spirit is gonna take them and he's going to baptize, immerse, submerge them into the body of Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul later writes to the church at Corinth and he says in chapter 12, verse 13, for in one spirit we were all, everybody say all. That means you if you're a Christian. For, by one, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body Look, look, look at this, Jews or Greeks, 
You see how everything's changing? It's not just God and his covenant with Israel. Now the old covenant's passing away. A new covenant has come where all people, Jews and Greeks, can know the Lord and be reconciled to the Lord. And so Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, for all were made to drink of one spirit. Again, if you wanna write that down somewhere, that's 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. And so, man, this right now, this is an important chapter and I'm excited to be able to teach it to you. So we'll start in verse one. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Why? Because it's the day of Pentecost. All right, so in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16, way back in the law of Moses, 1,500 years before where we are in our Bibles, you need to know that God commanded his people Israel through Moses that he wanted all the males in the land to appear before him on at least three occasions, three sacred festivals, three feasts. He wanted them all to appear before him during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, during the Feast of Weeks, and during the Feast of Booths. Okay, Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's Passover and seven days following where they would only eat unleavened bread, matzah bread. And then the Feast of Booths in the Greek, that's I'm sorry, the Feast of um, Weeks in the Greek, that's Pentecost. And then the Feast of Booths, that's Tabernacles. And so everybody say Passover. Passover. Everybody say Pentecost. Pentecost. Everybody say Tabernacles. Pentecost. All right, so during those three pilgrimage feasts, you need to know, back to the first century AD, where we are in Acts 2, that tens of thousands of Jews would converge upon the city of Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, this feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because God said in Deuteronomy 16, 16, I want you all to gather in the, in the place that um, um, I will choose. And later on, as you read the Old Testament, if you've read the Old Testament, let me see your hand. So important, guys, you get back into the Old Testament. It's the foundation for the new. It makes the new really make sense. But God, later on, as you read the Old Testament, says that he picks Jerusalem for his name forever. He says it again and again and again and again. So here we are, we're in Jerusalem. It's the Feast of Pentecost, and Jerusalem is packed with pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire. I mean, it's like people, people, people everywhere. Think US one Friday at 5 p.m. <laughs> and you'll start to get a little bit of idea as you're in your car, trying to get home because you got a date with your wife or whatever and it's just taking forever, right? It's like, can you get out of my way so I can just get home? Well, in the first century, they didn't have cars. They had donkeys and camels. And so there they are, get your camel out of the way. I'm trying to get home. I'm trying to get to the temple, right? It's just packed with people in Jerusalem. People, people everywhere. Now, what does the word Pentecost mean if you're taking notes? It means the 50th day, okay? So you have Passover. After Passover, you have seven days called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As I said, they only ate unleavened bread because as their ancestors are leaving Egypt, they have to leave in haste. No time for the bread to rise, no time for leaven. Leaven also is a symbol of evil. And so they carried on this tradition throughout Israel, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, seven days. Okay, so Passover day, Feast of Unleavened Bread. After Passover, there's a Sabbath on a Saturday, the very next day, that's called the Feast of First Fruits. 
And that's when the Jews would start to count. Seven weeks, all right? Seven times seven, you tell me, is what? 49. They count 49 days, and the next day, the 50th day, that is the Feast of Pentecost. So why are they all there, gathered up in Jerusalem? They're there to give thanks. I love this. They all gathered together for the Feast of Pentecost in order to thank God for the wheat harvest that he had blessed them with another year. And I love their attitude of gratitude. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're here today and you're all bummed out, if you're here today and you're all discouraged because you know something wrong is happening in your life, do you know that you have the power as far as what you think about? And so you need to just take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. Do not allow those to cause you to be in a funk. Here's a good idea. Follow the old hymn. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. And so just appear before the Lord in an attitude of gratitude and begin to thank God for all of his abundant blessings and provision in your life. And you can say, hey, God, thank you so much, right? Thank you for Jesus. Thank you so much that I'm not part of a religion going through rituals, but I have a relationship with the living God. I've been reconciled to the living God, my creator, by the blood of Jesus. I'm grateful for the Holy Spirit who lives inside of me. God, thank you for my wife. Thank you for my kids. Thank you for my grandkids, if you have any grandkids. Thank you for my friends who are there and have my back through thick and thin. Thank you so much for my house or my apartment or my car, the clothes I wear, the food I eat. Do you see? When you start thanking God, everything begins to change. And you do what the Jews did for so many years and you count your blessings and they're just thanking God for the wheat harvest. <laughs> Thank you, God, we can eat another day. And so on the day of Pentecost, we're gonna see in verse two, 120 disciples are in a quote unquote house. Now the word house can be defined as dwelling place or building. Now, I personally believe that they're no longer in the upper room, Acts chapter one, verse 13. I believe personally, this is my opinion, and I'll throw out my opinions and differentiate my opinions. I wanna differentiate my opinions from straight Bible teaching, okay? But I think they've moved. And the reason I think they moved to a large room adjacent to the temple courts is because we're gonna see in a little while, getting into next week, that Peter starts to preach to thousands and thousands of people. And so the only place that you can fit thousands and thousands of people in that day would be the temple courts, which by the way, the temple courts could fit 200,000 people. And so let's pick it up. Let's find out what happens in verse two. And suddenly... There came from heaven a sound. Everybody say the word sound. A sound like a mighty rushing wind. Not an actual mighty rushing wind, but a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house, dwelling place, building, where they were, what's the word? Sitting. Please notice they weren't rolling in the aisles. Just throw that in for free. <laughs> and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them. Notice divided tongues as of fire, not actual fire burning their hair. 
This is the vision. Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all, my favorite part, filled with the Holy Spirit. Promise fulfilled. How many of you know that God is a promise keeper and not a promise breaker? He said the Spirit would come. Guess what? He came. He's filling them. He's indwelling them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues. The word is glosa. Everybody stick out your tongue at me. I'll give it back to you. That's your glosa. That's your tongue. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, and so to celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit, to celebrate the birth of the church, the first birthday of the church, right here, right now, in order to celebrate a new era, a new dispensation, God performed an amazing miracle to show his mighty power. And so the 120 disciples, they're there in this large dwelling place, this building, whatever it was. They're, they're, there they are. And all of a sudden, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. I mean, imagine what the sound of hurricane force winds. Imagine what that would sound like. Okay, imagine um, you go out to the beach as a hurricane. And by the way, can I, can I ask you to pray with me that no hurricanes hit <laughs> poor St. Lucie or Florida in 2019? It always cracks me up when younger people, like teenagers, are like, man, hurricane, I hope it comes. It'll be so cool. And you know, just wait till you get a little older and you start having what's called assets. And you're not gonna want any hurricanes to come. You know, God, take it to Georgia. You know, just keep it out of Florida, whatever. Sorry, Georgia, sorry. All right, and so imagine that sound. Imagine, you know, as we see every time a hurricane hits, uh, imagine the, the local reporter is out there on the beach, you know. I don't understand why these guys do this. And he's out there and the wind's blowing. He's like, oh yeah, okay, look, they're surfing out there. Man, they're so wrong. It's like, what are you doing, dude? You're out there too, you know? One day, I think it is, as those local reporters are, are like out there during the hurricane reporting, you know, on the scene, hold on to a tree. One day, you know, I think I'm gonna see one of them just kind of fly off from the screen. It's like, why are they out there? Man, get into a shelter. But imagine what that hurricane wind would sound like. Imagine a 747 taking off. And that sound comes and fills this large room. And then all of a sudden, they have a vision. They see tongues, glossa, like fire that's resting on them. Now, what did all this mean? Well, the sound, like a mighty rushing wind, just signified God's power. God's power. This is a new era, a new dispensation, the birth of the church. And God wants to celebrate that with his power. And then the tongues as a fire, what did that signify? It signified God's presence. Think burning bush. Mount Horeb, Moses comes out, sees the, the bush and it's burning and burning and yet the bush is not consumed. And then all of a sudden he hears a voice, take your shoes off. <laughs> Why? Because God, Yahweh God is here. God's 
presence. And then my favorite thing happens. It says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit of God. God promised, I'm gonna baptize you, submerge you, immerse you in the Holy Spirit. And now this is happening, again, not just a temporary basis in the Old Testament, here and gone, here and gone. The Holy Spirit rushes upon Samson, he kills a bunch of Philistines, and then the Holy Spirit's gone. No, 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 this is a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, sealed until the day of redemption. And then they begin to speak in other tongues, glossa. We're gonna see in a moment um, that these are languages in verses six and eight. And so Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come and wow, wow, did he come. And now we pick it up in verse five. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now, let me just stop right there. What do these guys need more than anything? Who do these guys need more than anything? Jesus Christ. They need to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And what did Jesus tell the disciples back in Acts 1-8? That you're gonna, be, you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you're gonna be witnesses. Okay, keep that in mind, all right? All right, and so verse six, and at this sound, the sound of the mighty rushing wind, the multitude came together and they were bewildered, they were confused because each one was hearing them, the disciples, speak in his own, what's the word? Language, dialectos in the Greek. And they, the crowd, were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native, what's the word? Dialectos, language. Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. And visitors from all the way over in Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues, now the word back to glossa, so we see that glossa and dialectos are used interchangeably in this passage. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, of course, you always have some in the crowd, mocking, said, oh, they're all filled with new wine. They're all drunk. Now, as I said earlier, tens of thousands of Jews converge upon Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. I want you to look at where, where they're all from. Okay, so here's what's going on right now. If you see Jerusalem, say amen. amen. This is the place where God said, I'll put my name forever. And visiting Jerusalem, you have Jews and proselytes to Judaism from Arabia and Elam and Media and Parthia and Mesopotamia, Cappadocia, Pontus, way up there in Pontus, Pamphylia, Phrygia and Asia, all the way over in Rome, in Italy, the boot, and then Crete, the little island in the Mediterranean Sea, and then in Africa, you got uh, Libya, so Cyrene and, and Egypt. And then right down the road in Judea, you have tens of thousands of Jews converging upon Jerusalem. Luke named 15 
different geographical locations. And so they're all together and they hear the sound, or I say sound, like a mighty rushing wind. And they're all like, what is going on? And so they all converge to one area. Again, I believe personally it's the temple courts. It can fit 200,000 people. And so they all gather together and they're confused. The reason they're confused, bewildered is the word in the, in the text, is because they can't understand how these Galileans could be praising God in their own native languages. All right, so I want, I want you to imagine that you're in a, a large place, let's say a concert, and there's, I don't know, 10,000 people gathered together, and, and then all of a sudden over in one corner, there's 100 or so people, and they're all, they all begin to praise God. And you're English, and then you, you find out that they're praising God in various languages. Some are praising God in, in Russian. Some are praising God in German. Some are praising God in Spanish, others in French, others in Portuguese, others in Hebrew, others in Arabic, others in Hindi, others in Chinese, the Chinese language or the Japanese language. And there's one guy and he's praising God in the English language. And you're like, oh, I got that one. And you go over thinking he's an American. Hey, how's it going, bro? And you find out this guy's from Russia and he doesn't even know the English language. Never been taught it. Okay, so now you have an idea of what's happening here in Acts chapter two. One of my favorite teachers, Charles Ryrie, uh, wrote this about this text. He said, the disciples began each to speak in, what's the next two words? All right, so everybody look at me. What we practice here at Calvary as we teach the Bible is exegesis, not eisegesis. You say, what does that mean? That means that we extract exegesis from the text, from God's word, whatever it says. We do not take our own ideas of what we think should happen and try to force that into the text. That's eisegesis, that's false teaching. Okay, and so what's happening here is that the disciples began each to speak in real languages, new to the speakers, and understood by those from various lands who were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. The natural sense of these verses indicates that the tongues were not jargon, but real languages, and that the miracle was in the giving of the ability to speak these languages, not, as some sadly will teach, in sensitizing in some way the ears of the hearers. Ladies and gentlemen, the disciples were not speaking in Charles Ryrie's word, jargon. In other words, this was not ecstatic utterances of unintelligible sounds that does not constitute a legitimate language. What was happening? Well, we'll look at it again, please, in verse six. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak, speak in his own, what's the word? Language, dialectos. Look at verse eight. And they said, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native, what's the word? Dialectos, language. 
And so it's clear that these were human languages, not ecstatic utterances of unintelligible sounds, which by the way is prevalent in many pagan religions since ancient times. And so the multitude's thinking, how in the world can these Galileans, Galileans who have the reputation of being uneducated and unsophisticated, Galileans who you know, can't even speak their own Aramaic language correctly, how can these guys of all people be speaking our languages from all over the Roman Empire fluently? What was going on? Here's what was going on, ladies and gentlemen. God showed up. This is a new era, a new dispensation. It's the birth of the church and God shows up in his power and he does a miracle to get their attention so that they can hear the gospel starting in verse 14 from the apostle Peter. So Peter's there, he's praising God in a language that he never learned. It's a miracle of God. But then he stops with that and then he goes over starting in verse 14 and he shares the gospel either in Greek or Aramaic, the tongue that everybody understood. Is this making sense to you guys? So we're just going verse by verse and we're just teaching what's in front of us. This, by the way, is not an exhaustive study on the gift of tongues this afternoon. We're just going through Acts 2, verse by verse. All right, and so this miracle produced two responses. First of all, it was a, qu a question. People in the crowd said, what does this mean? What's going on? And then other people, because there's always those in the crowd, are like trying to make a joke. Oh, they're all drunk. By the way, do you know why people sometimes use humor? Because they get into a room like this and they start to hear truth and the Holy Spirit starts to convict them. And they don't like it because they're not ready to repent. They're not ready to stop sinning whatever sin they, they, they like to do. They're not ready to give their life to Jesus. And so what do they do? They use humor in order to get away from the conviction. Just get me out to my car, get me out of here as soon as possible. And, and I wanna encourage you that if you're here today and you sense conviction, guilt over some sin that you're involved in, don't try to make a joke and don't try to shut off the voice of the Holy Spirit. Listen, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Just because God's speaking now doesn't mean he's gonna keep speaking to you forever. And life is a vapor. You're here today, you're gone tomorrow. And if you're not right with God, you gotta get right with God. You gotta get right with God and the only way to get right with God is through his son Jesus. All right, and so they're not drunk and Peter's gonna stand up and, and share that right now. So it's verse 14. But Peter, standing with the 11, okay, notice he's with the 11. That means that Matthias has replaced Judas. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the, what hour? It's only 9 a.m. in the morning, right? Give me a break. But this is what was uttered through the prophet, who, who? Joel, I love this, I love this. Peter explained the miracle that had just taken place by pointing back to the scriptures. Oh man, you gotta hear this. Ladies and gentlemen, we got 
to find the basis for what we do in this book. Here's, here's what I know, there are a lot of things going on in churches, so-called spiritual phenomenon that cannot be found in this book. How many of you guys ever heard of holy laughter? Right, you say, I've never heard of it, good. <laughs> We're talking about people in churches, in the aisle, rolling around, laughing uncontrollably, one, two, three, four, five plus minutes, just laughing and laughing and laughing. Oh, it's the Lord, really? People running around barking like dogs in church, roaring like lions in church, seeing visions of gold dust coming down from the rafters, uh, twitching uncontrollably in their seats, speaking gibberish, falling over or being slain in the spirit. Now there's only one place I can find in the Bible that would substantiate the whole idea of being slain in the spirit. And that is in Acts chapter five where Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit and they fall over dead. I don't wanna be slain in the spirit. <laughs> do, you, do you get where I'm coming from here? Just because you experience something does not mean it's from God. Where's the biblical basis? And I've had people tell me, well, brother, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, I am, and they all fell over. And so that's the biblical basis. Okay, so you're gonna take that verse out of context to justify why, why every church service you line people up so the preacher can hit them and knock them over and, and someone can catch them? No, no. Peter pointed back to the scriptures. And when believers focus on so-called signs and wonders, which are actually counterfeit signs and wonders, here's what they do. When they focus on all that stuff, they stop focusing on the teaching of God's word. And when you stop focusing on the teaching of God's word, you're not being spiritually fed. And when you're not being spiritually fed, you become stunted in your spiritual growth. And that's why Paul told the people in Corinth, it's time to grow up. If you're wondering what's authentic and what's not authentic, I'll give you three questions right here. The first question is when you see something on TV, and I really don't endorse a lot of the religious TV stations. Some of that stuff will just mess you up, confuse you, and hurt you. So the questions you gotta ask is, is this taught, what I'm seeing right now, is this taught in the New Testament? Can it be found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or Acts? And then, is it expounded upon or taught by the apostles in the letters and the epistles of the New Testament? The second thing you gotta ask yourself is, is this really Christ-centered? And then the third thing is, does this spiritually edify me or is this just a bunch of emotional hype? And by the way, all the legitimate gifts of the Holy Spirit they all fit those three criteria perfectly. Ladies and gentlemen, there is enough in this book for us to experience. We don't have to go outside of this book for some you know, new thing. So be very careful, be very careful. And so Peter explained the miracle that had just taken place by pointing them to the scriptures. He says in verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now he's quoting Joel 2, 
28 through 32. I don't think he pulled out a scroll of Joel. I think Peter is a man of God who knows the word of God and he just starts quoting the word of God. He says, quoting Joel 2, 28 through 32. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Ask yourself, did this happen on the day of Pentecost? Verse 20, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon turned to blood. Let me ask you, did that happen on the day of Pentecost? Yes or no? No. Of course not. Peter thinks he's in the last days because every generation of believers should believe that we're in the last days and the Lord could come at any moment. And so he's quoting Joel chapter two, which is a prophecy about the end times when the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon turned to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so because only some of the things listed in Joel chapter two, 28 through 32, because only some of those things took place on the day of Pentecost, we know this, it's your next point. Pentecost provided a taste, everybody say taste. A taste of the kingdom of God. Joel 2, 28 through 32 is about, all about the coming tribulation and the coming kingdom of God. And so we know the coming tribulation, seven year period, we taught it the whole year in 2017 called the book of Revelation. We know that that future period will be characterized by what we just read, blood, fire, smoke, darkened sun, and a blood red moon. And Joel chapter two is all about the coming kingdom, which will be established after the coming tribulation, when God is gonna pour out his spirit on all flesh. Everybody say the word all. The reason everybody's gonna be filled and indwelt by the Holy Spirit coming into the kingdom is because you cannot enter the kingdom of King Jesus unless you've bowed your knee to King Jesus. And when you bow your knee to King Jesus, he gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Joel chapter two is about the last days. Peter thinks, as every generation of Christians think, we're in the last days, and so he quotes this. And so what happened on the day of Pentecost? It was a sneak preview of coming attractions. Have you ever watched a trailer of a movie and you're like, oh man, this is gonna be a great movie. I can't wait till it comes out. And you find out it's not coming out until the summer. <sighs> right? That's what this is. Have you ever guys been in the kitchen, your wife's cooking dinner and you can smell it and you go over and you just take a little taste and you're like, mmm, just kind of melts in your mouth and when's dinner? And your wife says, an hour. And you're like, oh. That's what this is, this is a taste. Now here's the good news, if you're with me, say amen. amen. The good news is we can have a taste right now. In this age. Guess what, when a person turns from their sins and turns to Jesus Christ, King Jesus, he'll give you the gift of the Holy Spirit who will submerge, immerse, 
you in his love and you'll receive his love and his wisdom and his joy and his peace. And you may even receive the gift of prophecy. Did you know the gifts are for today? The legitimate gifts are for today? I'm not talking about prophecy on the same level as the apostles prophesying God's inspired word, which has been written down in the New Testament. I'm not saying that at all. That the Bible is closed, the canon is closed. This is our final authority for all matters of faith and practice, but the gifts are still for today. And so he may give you a, a, a word of knowledge. He may give you a word of wisdom. He may give you a word of prophecy to encourage and build somebody up. If you're a young man, he may give you a vision. I'm not gonna put God in a box and say that he doesn't do those things today. Of course he can still do those things today. And if you're an old man like me, he says the old men will dream dreams. Now my dreams are all very weird. <laughs> so I don't think they come from God. But he may give me a dream someday. Now I understand there's false teachers and they fake some of this stuff and get off, off the the, the, the right path. And so that's why we have a verse in the Bible. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 21. It says, test everything and hold fast what is good. So don't, don't deny that all the gifts are for today. Test everything. And remember, this is our final authority. Amen? Amen. All right. And so we're in verse 22 now. He says, men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, do you see how Jesus is the center of his preaching? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, everybody say definite plan. God is sovereign. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Man, this is so cool. Imagine Peter on the temple courts, thousands of people, and he's preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What happened to this guy? He cowered before a servant girl just, what, 50-something days before? Afraid of a little girl. And now he's preaching to thousands that Jesus is risen from the dead. What happened to him? Two things. He saw the, the risen Christ, and he received the Holy Spirit. That's good news. And so God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so I love, love, love this sermon in Acts chapter two on the birthday of the church. It was all about Jesus. That's what our preaching needs to be about. God's got a call in your life to be a pastor or a teacher or a preacher. Don't get off the beaten path and focus on all these other things. Keep it about Jesus. He's the one that changes lives. And so next point, in his Christ-centered preaching, we're gonna go through these three things and then we're gonna receive communion together, okay? So we may go five, maybe 10 at the most minutes over, but that's okay, right? I mean, you, you guys can watch a two-hour movie and waste, me too, two hours. So we're in church. So let's go through these things in the Christ-centered preaching. All right, so verse 22, the ministry of Jesus is what he talks about first. 
So everybody, please look at verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. All right, he reminds them about the ministry of Jesus and they knew about it because Jesus was just there about two months earlier. And so they know Jesus is the one who gave sight to the blind, healed the sick, cleansed lepers. Who does that? Cast out demons. He's the one who turned water into wine. Who does that? He's the one who took two, uh, two pieces of fish and five loaves and fed thousands of people. Who does that? He is the one who, by the way, spoke to a storm and calmed a nasty storm. Peace be still. Who can do that? He's the one who raised the dead. Ladies and gentlemen, how do we know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? By his works, by his wonders, and by his signs, his miracles. What religious leader ever did anything like Jesus? Do you see, you know, as Christians, we don't, you know, make agreements with other religions and, and endorse their religious position so we can all make this like one world religion and all walk off into the sunset holding hands thinking we've done a good thing. No, Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Christianity, period, is the right way. Amen. Nobody else did what Jesus did. <laughs> Nobody else did what Jesus did. And so he reminds them of his ministry and then he reminds them of the death of Jesus. He says in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, say definite plan, and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so here we have one of those classic verses in the Bible that teaches both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Okay, so if you're taking notes, we'll just go ahead and put up verse 23. Look at God's sovereignty here. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But in the very same verse, it says that Peter says, you crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. All right, and so concerning the sovereignty of God, if you're new to the Bible, you need to know that before the foundation of the world, before the creation of the material universe, in the eternal councils of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit made a definite plan through his infinite foreknowledge for our redemption. And that included that God the Son would one day take on human flesh and live a perfect life and be delivered up for our sins on a cross so that we could be forgiven of all of our sins and, and, and have him in this life and, and, and have him in the next life as well. And so you need to know that God is absolutely sovereign, but Peter said, well, you killed him. <laughs> I got a question for you guys. You can answer out loud. Did... God's sovereignty absolve those who murdered Jesus of their guilt? No. Right? Those who had 
Even though God is sovereign, even though he made a definite plan in detail concerning our redemption, you need to know that those who were involved in crucifying Christ had blood on their hands, right? Judas who betrayed him, the Sanhedrin who tried and condemned him, the crowd who said crucify him, Pilate and the Romans who carried it out, all of them had blood on their hands. You say, pastor, how in the world could they be responsible? Here's how. Because even though God is sovereign, we're responsible for our actions. It's very interesting to me that the Bible teaches both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man side by side. Where we err is when we teach one truth to the exclusion of the other. Now stay with me, I'm gonna help you out here. In other words, when some people teach just God's sovereignty and ex to the exclusion of man's responsibility, that's wrong. And when some other people on the other side of the church teach just man's responsibility to the exclusion of God's sovereignty, that is wrong. We should not do that. We also err when we build theological systems around just one of those truths, and then we go to the Bible and we try to interpret the Bible based upon our predetermined theological position. Ladies and gentlemen, we should not do that. Now, now half of you probably know that there's been a debate for almost 500 years between people who are called Calvinist and people who are called Arminians. You need to know as your pastor, I'm neither. I am not an Arminian, I'm not a Calvinist, I'm a Biblicist. That means I just study and teach the Bible. And what I know is the Bible teaches both. So when we're in a passage going verse by verse and it teaches God's sovereignty, I'm gonna sound like a Calvinist, I'm gonna teach God's sovereignty, right? And then when we're going through the Bible and it teaches man's responsibility, you may think I'm an Arminian, but you know what? I'm just gonna teach God's word. And you say, do you understand how they go together? No, I don't. But here's what I know. If God is small enough for me to understand, he's not big enough for me to worship. He's not. So here's what we, here's, here's what we should do. Let's stop arguing about this subject and let's just get home and let Jesus explain it to us. In the meantime, let's focus on what's really important and that's winning people to Christ and discipling believers. That's what we should do. And then here's your last point in the Christ-centered teaching. We'll go back one slide. Not only did Peter talk about the ministry or the death of Jesus, he talked about the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm gonna read 24 through 28. So if you're looking at verse 24, say amen. Okay, so follow me all the way to the end here because here's the best news of all. He's risen. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David, okay, we're talking about a thousand years before where we are in the Bible. <laughs> King David, remember him? For David says concerning him, concerning Christ. And now he's quoting from the Psalms. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. And now in verse 27, Peter's quoting Psalm 16:10. For you that's God the Father, will not abandon my soul to Hades, Sheol, the grave, or 
Let your, what's the next two words? Holy one, see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. 1,000 years before David wrote this. Okay, so Peter quotes what David said 1,000 years BC. Now we'll go to our last screen. Okay, so this is Psalm 1610. How many of you guys read the Psalms? Let me see your hands. This is 1,000 years before Christ. For you will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your holy ones see corruption. Here's a question for you. Did David's body see corruption in the grave? Yes or no? Yes. In fact, we're gonna see next week in verse 29, Peter's gonna say, hey, his grave is right here with us in Jerusalem. You wanna dig him up and see his bones? So if David's body saw corruption in the grave, who's this holy one whose body would not see corruption? The Lord Jesus Christ, a prophecy of the resurrection 1,000 years before it actually happened. And so Jesus, his body didn't see corruption because he checked in on Friday and he checked out on Sunday. And we're glad that we serve a risen Savior. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right.